0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A judge orders several former Trump aides to
1: testify. The lead starts right now. Claims of executive privilege rejected by a judge. Now at least eight former top Trump White House aides, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, along with top aides Stephen Miller and Dan Scavino, all must testify in that criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And a barrage of rockets targeting a U.S. base in Syria. New attacks only one day after a drone affiliated with Iran killed a U.S. contractor, and wounded six others. We'll ask the Pentagon press secretary what is going on. Plus, Russian troops regrouping after steep losses in a key city in Ukraine. <clears throat> Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead any moment. President Biden is set to hold a news conference along with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. They are both in the capital of Canada, Ottawa, Perry is expected to take questions from reporters. We will cover that live. One topic likely to come up, tensions with Iran. After that suspected Iranian drone strike killed an American contractor and wounded five service members in Syria just yesterday. President Biden ordered a retaliatory airstrike, although the Pentagon clarified the U.S. is not looking for war with Iran. Again, we'll bring that news conference to you as soon as it begins. But until then, let's turn to our politics lead and our other major story of the day, a federal judge handing a significant blow to Donald Trump today, rejecting the former president's claims of executive privilege in that January 6 investigation. The judge ordering a number of Trump's former top White House aides to testify before a grand ju- jury, sources tell CNN. The list includes former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows, former director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe, former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, and others. Some of these aides have already testified, but now they're likely be forced to appear before the grand jury once again for even more testimony and ordered to turn over more documents. But as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, Trump's legal team is expected to try to appeal this decision.
2: Trump's closest advisers ordered to testify in two Justice Department probes, a federal judge rejecting Trump's claim of executive privilege, ordering former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, senior aide Stephen Miller, and others to answer questions from a grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation
3: with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol.
4: We're going to walk down to the
3: Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's
2: a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad. Separately, Evan Corcoran, a top Trump attorney and a crucial witness in Special Counsel Jack Smith's classified documents probe, spending nearly four hours testifying behind closed doors to a federal grand jury on Friday. Trump also fought in court to stop his testimony, but several judges ruling Corcoran must divulge information about the conversations he had with former President Trump leading up to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago last summer, and that Corcoran must turn over handwritten notes documenting their interaction. FBI agents seized more than 100 classified documents from mar lago in August. They should give me immediately
5: back everything that they've taken from me because it's mine. It's mine.
2: FBI agents seized more than 100 classified documents from mar lago in August. And in November, the attorney general appointed special counsel Jack Smith to investigate, among other things, whether Trump obstructed the government's attempts to get back all of the classified material still in his possession after he left office. Evan Corcoran crafted a statement in June 2022 Two, claiming a diligent search had been conducted at Mar-a-Lago and that all classified documents had been returned. A source tells CNN prosecutors wanted to ask Corcoran about that statement and a June phone call between him and Trump that took place the same day a subpoena was issued for Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage that showed boxes being moved out of a storage room. You
0: still have the surveillance tape, is that correct? Absolutely, Sean. Sources
2: tell CNN prosecutors have made clear that they believe Trump used Corcoran to advance a crime. A Trump spokesperson has fired back, accusing the Justice Department of continuously stepping far outside the standard norms in an attempt to destroy the long-accepted, long-held, constitutionally-based standards of attorney-client privilege and executive privilege.
6: From the beginning, he has tried to cooperate.
2: Trump attorney Tim Parlator tells CNN he also testified before the grand jury in December, divulging details about additional searches for classified documents he organized at several Trump properties last year.
6: They would rather make this into an adversarial fight and try to make it into a criminal case.
2: So Special Counsel Jack Smith will now be getting an influx of new information, both from Evan Corcoran, who was forced to testify in front of the grand jury today, and also from that array of top Trump administration officials who will now have to testify to the grand jury about what transpired on and around January 6th. And Jake, Our team is told that Trump's legal team is expected to appeal this decision and not let these officials assert this executive privilege. And interestingly, it does mean that some of these officials who have already been subpoenaed, like the former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, also Ken Cuccinelli from Homeland Security, it's likely they'll have to go back and testify more now that they can't assert that privilege.
1: All right. Uh, Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. Let's talk about this now. With CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, a lot to talk about here. Let's talk about, uh, let's start with the judge telling uh, all these Trump people that they have to uh, testify. Sources say Trump's legal team, they're expected to appeal. Do they have a case to make, an executive privilege case?
5: No, they don't, Jake. They certainly have the right to appeal, but they're not going to win. They've got two major problems. First of all, executive privilege is meant to design to protect governmental conversations about legitimate policy, legitimate strategy. It's not designed to cover up for disclosure about malfeasance or wrongdoing or criminality. This is a criminal grand jury subpoena. Judges are very likely to enforce those subpoenas, very unlikely to allow an assertion of executive privilege. And second of all, Trump's a former president. And while a former president can exert executive privilege in very narrow circumstances, it is a stark uphill climb to do that.
1: So Trump is also trying to assert executive privilege to stop uh, Vice President Pence from being forced to testify, do you think this ruling signals that that will also fail?
5: I do think so, Jake. Yesterday on this show, I said that Trump had virtually no chance to succeed on the Mike Pence case. I guess I'll downgrade that even further now. But it's important to keep in mind, there's a separate argument on the Pence case because Mike Pence himself is arguing that he's protected by a different legal doctrine, this idea of speech and debate, because as vice president, he was president of the Senate. I think there's a better basis for that. And that might enable Pence to avoid answering some questions about what he did in his role as Senate president.
1: If Trump loses these appeals, is there any way that Meadows and these other top Trump aides can get out of testifying? Can they plead the fifth?
5: There's only one way, and you just said it. They can take the fifth, that means that any testimony they give might be used against them. They have that absolute right to take the fifth. But if they do that... DOJ prosecutors do have a counter move available. They can go to a judge and ask for an order of immunity, meaning your testimony is not going to be used against you, but now you have to testify. That's a strategic decision to be made by prosecutors. I made that kind of decision quite frequently, but it means they get the testimony. It also means they're very unlikely to be able to prosecute, whether it's Mark Meadows or whoever the witness is.
1: So just to game this out, so let's say I'm Mark Meadows and I say... And I lose all the appeals and I'm forced to testify. I say, I'm going to assert my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. You're the prosecutor. You says, we're giving you complete immunity. You won't be incriminating yourself. And then you go to, and then what do I do if I'm Mark Meadows? And what do you do as the prosecutor?
5: So this is not optional. If a prosecutor gives Mark Meadows immunity, he has to testify. It doesn't matter whether he wants immunity or not. And if he refuses, if he just says, you can't force the words out of my mouth, Then we're in a contempt of court situation. And you may, those who remember history may think of Susan McDougal, who was a witness in the Clinton investigation, the Whitewater investigation. She went to prison for 18 months for refusing to testify. So if it comes down to it, if DOJ says you're immunized, Meadows, and he says, you can't make me talk, then a judge can absolutely throw Mark Meadows or whoever it is into prison until he does.
1: Take us behind the scenes. If you're a prosecutor about to question Meadows, Scavino, Miller, all these people who have had one-on-one conversations Donald Trump around January 6th.
5: How are you preparing for that? Well, first of all, it's just a goldmine to be able to go in and ask them. These are the key questions that you want to know. I'm looking at certainly all the documents. We know that prosecutors have sent out several documents for subpoenas. I'd want to look at everything the January 6th committee did. And most importantly, we just heard a clip Cassidy Hutchinson. I would review every word that Cassidy Hutchinson said because she was one of Mark Meadows' aides. She was by his side. She's already testified about conversations that she had with Meadows, but also conversations that she knows Meadows had with Trump. So I would go through that testimony very carefully and get out a red pen and circle all those pieces of testimony.
1: Why has it taken so long to get to this point? I mean, isn't Meadows, who we know is at the White House on January 6th, one of the first witnesses you would have tried to
5: secure? I completely agree with that sentiment, Jake. I think it's been a failure by Merrick Garland that it's taken until mid-2023 for Mark Meadows to be compelled to testify. There was never any mystery. Mark Meadows and the others were at the center of this. Garland has said all along, we start at the bottom and then we work our way up. But that's a bureaucratic approach. That's not a strong prosecutorial approach. The reality is good prosecutors start at the highest point you can. And so I think an aggressive prosecutor on day one or perhaps a few months in, in 2021, would have immediately subpoenaed Mark Meadows and the other people we're talking about. And if that had happened, they would have had this testimony long ago.
1: All right, Eli Honig, thanks so much for your insights as always. Turning to another Trump investigation now, the Hush Money investigation, that's in New York City. The grand jury is not meeting today, but Donald Trump seems to be encouraging, threatening, discussing violence if he is indicted. He wrote on his social media platform, Truth Social, today, quote, What kind of person can charge another person, in this case a former president of the United States, who got more votes than any sitting president in history and leading candidate by far for the Republican Party nomination, with a crime when it is known by all that no crime has been committed, and also known that potential death and destruction in such a false charge could be catastrophic for our country, unquote. Shocking comments uh, from Donald Trump, which led the House Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, to say this.
7: Well, the twice impeached former president's rhetoric uh, is reckless, reprehensible and irresponsible. It's dangerous. And if he keeps it up, he's going to get someone killed. Well, past his prologue, uh,
1: CNN's Kara is in New York for his care. What do we expect to happen next in this hush money case?
8: Well, Jake, the grand jury is scheduled to meet again on Monday, and it's possible that prosecutors bring at least one more witness. Before the grand jury for testimony, I mean, a lot of this is all held behind closed doors. It's a secret proceeding and process. Uh, but all indications leave that we're nearing toward the end of this investigation, and everyone is looking to, to to the to the for Alvin Bragg, the DA, to answer the question of will he move forward with an indictment of the former president. And as you just um, read, the, Trump has been really ratcheting up. His rhetoric, he not only is calling for death and destruction, but he's calling for protests in the event that he is indicted. Now, there will be protests around the courthouse this weekend, but they are not for the former president. Uh, Instead, there will be—it's for a movie shoot. The sequel to The Joker is going to be filming around the protests and uh, there—excuse me, around the courthouse, and they're going to have a large protest scene. There will also be cars on fire and maybe even a sighting of Lady Gaga. Uh, She stars in the movie, which is being produced by the parent company of CNN. Jake?
1: All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We're standing by for that joint news conference with President Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We'll bring that to you live when it happens and— it's likely he will be asked about our other big story, President Biden. His decision to authorize an airstrike in Syria after a drone attack killed a U.S. contractor. The latest from the Pentagon is next. Topping our world lead, 10 rockets hit a base in Syria this morning where U.S. troops are stationed. Ten. The Pentagon believes the rockets were fired by Iranian-affiliated groups. It comes just one day after an Iranian-affiliated drone hit a facility housing U.S. personnel. And that killed a U.S. contractor and wounded six others, another U.S. contractor and five U.S. service members. In response to that drone attack, President Biden launched a retaliatory strike, which hit facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us now from the Pentagon. And Oren... Were U.S. troops injured in this latest rocket attack? And tell us about the effect on any U.S.
6: military equipment. Jake, this barrage of 10 rockets towards Green Village, a base that houses U.S. troops in sort of central eastern Syria, did not injure any U.S. or coalition troops. It did not damage any uh, facilities or infrastructure at the base either, according to U.S. Central Command. But one of those rockets fired was about three miles off target and actually hit a civilian home there, wounding two women and two children, according to U.S. Central Command. So certainly not the intended target, but a result of this strike. It comes as part of this larger and very rapid sort of escalation and conflict we've seen right in Syria over the course of the past 24, 48 hours or so that began with a one-way UAV attack or a suicide drone attack on a facility in far northeast Syria in Hasakah that, as you said, led to the deaths of a U.S. contractor, an American citizen as well as the injuries of five U.S. troops and another contractor, all of whom at this point are in stable condition. The question, what happens at this point? General Eric Carilla, the commander of U.S. Central Command, said the U.S. has the option and the capability to strike if there is a continuation here and more attacks by Iranian proxies or groups affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps moving forward here.
1: What are you hearing about the possibility that President Biden could order the launch of another retaliatory attack?
6: That possibility is very much on the table. The U.S. said its previous strike, the one carried out in response to the drone attack, struck facilities used for ammunition and intelligence by groups associated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They're still waiting to see if there was anyone killed or casualties in that strike, but the U.S. has made it clear that if this continues, though the U.S. doesn't seek to escalate here, it will protect its troops here, it will protect its forces, and if President Joe Biden or... Uh, other commanders deem it necessary. There may be a follow on strike. And frankly, after 10 rockets fired at Green Village, it would not be much of a surprise, Jake.
1: All right. Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in the former Secretary of Defense under President Trump, uh, Mark Asper. Mark, good to see you. Um, first off, I'm sure there are viewers right now who are wondering, why do we have service members and U.S. contractors in Syria? So why, why do we?
4: Well, first of all, good afternoon, Jake. It's good to be back with you. Look, we have and have had nearly 1,000 troops in Syria for several years now. Uh, They were the uh, follow-on force, if you will, that stayed behind once we defeated ISIS in Syria. If you recall, during the Trump administration, ISIS was rolled back considerably and the caliphate was largely destroyed. So those 900 troops or so on the ground there are working with our partners and ensuring that ISIS doesn't rise back up and, uh, and attack our allies and partners in the region or eventually try and strike our homeland. So one
1: of the rockets lobbed at U.S. forces in Syria this morning missed the facility by about three miles. Um, is the technology from these Iranian-affiliated groups, is it not good? Or do you think the groups did that on purpose to send a message that they could have hit
4: the U.S., but they didn't this time? Well, who knows jake? i you, you know sometimes you have misfires, right? That happens in in conflicts, but it's clear that for the most part, Shia militia groups are funded and resourced and in many cases directed by Tehran. And so the question is why is this uh, why is this escalating at this point in time? now, on the other hand, we've heard from DoD that since january twentieth twenty one we we are attacked nearly every ten days or so. There's been nearly eighty attacks in uh, in this two year period. so this is ongoing in many ways, and now we've had an American killed, six or seven others injured, and I give the Biden administration credit for responding, for retaliating, retaliating. It's exactly what they should do. And who are these Iranian-affiliated groups? Right. I mean, there are a variety of Shia militia groups, each led by different people, all connected and interlinked in different ways. Uh, and in many cases, trying to have influence in Syria or in the case of Iraq, they're in they're in Iraq as well. And Syria is important for Iran because it's a um, it, it provides Syria a good deal of weapons. It is also a transit point for uh, Syri- for Iran to provide weapons to uh, Le- Lebanese Hezbollah. And so uh, again, Syria is Syria is a very important transit country. For the United States, I'm, for, I'm sorry for Iran, and it's uh, it's a place by which the United States can keep a close eye on what Iran is also doing in the region. So that's another reason for our presence there.
1: What are your concerns when it comes to retaliation, and obviously the fact that the United States does not want to get into a full scale war with Iran?
4: Well, my concern would be is that we don't respond appropriately, and deterrence slowly weakens to the point where. Iranians begin striking us with impunity and then we we become self-deterred in some ways. I think we need to stand up uh, to these militia groups. We need to respond appropriately and push back. I think the bigger question looming out there, though, Jake, is what's going on with Iran and its nuclear efforts. Um, we heard some disturbing news today that they may be moving closer and lo- closer to um, having highly enriched uranium and may have even closed the timeline to being able to produce a device. So uh, that is the bigger thing looming in the background for I think all folks focused on this issue.
1: So the U.S. troops are there. The U.S. service members are there based on the authorization for use of military force from the war in
4: Iraq or from the war in Afghanistan or which is it? You know, I, I wish I could recall exactly what authorities they're used. It could be under the president's uh, Article 2 authority. I just don't recall, Jake, which authorities it is used under. But I know that's being considered in the Senate uh, and maybe in the, in the House as well. But that is uh, an authority that needs to be extended if we want to continue to, to conduct this mit- mission, which I think we should. Do you think this is the kind of thing that theoretically the U.S. Congress should vote on? I mean, if we have almost
1: you, you, uh, a 1,000 troops stationed in Syria. They've been there for years now. Obviously, there are risks inherent. Should the U.S. uh, Congress
4: have some skin in the game here and and vote on whether or not they approve of this? Well, one could certainly make the case since uh, Congress has authority to declare war. Now, this is clearly not a case of war. It's a case of a deployment, but we are engaged, if you will. Uh, That said, Congress has known about this for many years. They've been briefed many, many times on our presence there, what happens, the threats we face, the challenges, et cetera. So it's not like Congress is not aware and has not condoned it. Uh, the question is, should they take a more active role? And I think it's always good to have congressional oversight in these types of matters.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying that this anything was hidden from Congress. They don't like to, they don't like to take votes in which they have to actually expend any political capital. It's, it's more a criticism I, of them, not, not, uh, not the Pentagon. Um, but as you note, uh, according to the commander uh, of Central Command, since 2021, Iranian proxy forces have carried out literally dozens of attacks against U.S. personnel. How dangerous is it for U.S. service members and contractors in Syria? And how does the U.S. address these nonstop attacks?
4: Look, it is very serious. It's a dangerous place to be. You have uh, malevolent Iranian uh, actions and activities all throughout the region, so you have to be careful. You know, the U.S. US military puts uh, self-force protection, number one, and I'm sure we're taking every possible precaution. Uh, you know, there are probably new technologies that we should be deploying out there to make sure we can further protect our troops. But I think the, the bigger issue beyond self-protection, force protection, is to make sure, again, that we we respond and, and do so proactively where we need to be if we're aware of Iranian designs or Shia militia designs against our forces. Uh, because, we look, we cannot afford uh, to lose Americans at all, and we we also— cannot afford to let something escalate unless we want it to escalate and and, and are prepared to do so in in a deliberate fashion. All right,
1: former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. As we stand by for President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau coming up, I'm going to talk to someone who has spent years reporting on activity in Syria and the sensitivities of the U.S.-Iranian relationship. Stay with us. And our world lead, President Joe Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau are about to hold a joint news conference in Ottawa, Canada's capital city. It's Biden's first trek across America's northern border during his presidency. CNN's chief White House correspondent Phil Mattingly joins us now. And Phil, uh, we anticipate President Biden is going to be asked about this drone attack on U.S. troops and contractors in Syria.
9: Yeah, Jake, that's the expectation, not just that he'll probably get asked about it. There's a good chance I'm told that he will address it himself at the beginning of his remarks before this press conference. And that would be his first public response uh, to the drone attack that killed an American contractor and wounded U.S. service members. I think the real question right now as this has kind of loomed throughout this 27-hour trip into Canada. It was a packed schedule throughout, but on the president's way up here on Air Force One is when he was first briefed about these attacks, uh, was given the options to respond Uh, and ended up choosing the option Uh, that he did with the F-35s last night is what happens next. And I think that is a looming question that has been out there. His national security team has obviously been engaged throughout the course of the day uh, in a series of meetings with their Canadian counterparts, but this uh, has still been a significant issue that they've been dealing with as well. Now, he will be standing side by side with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, coming after lengthy remarks to the Canadian Parliament, where he really underscored the warmth uh, and to some degree the necessity of the relationship uh, with uh, the Brother to the North, if you will. Uh, But underneath, there certainly have been a series of policy issues that they've been trying to figure out resolutions to. The president making clear, though, to some degree, that those challenges that they face on the bilateral side of things are challenges that are addressed uh, through the mode of friendship, not necessarily adversarially. Might not reach agreements on everything, but the relationship remains intact and the broader state of the relationship with which White House officials made clear they really wanted to elevate both the importance of and the steadfast nature of it during this trip uh, was certainly laid out in great detail by the president in his remarks. But I think, again, looming over everything has been these strikes. And I thought what Secretary Esper said prior is also a critical question at this moment. Uh, As the president deals with a series of geopolitical issues right now, the fact that Iranian proxies uh, have conducted more than 78 attacks since 2021 uh, on U.S. service members. At the same time, Iran itself has rapidly advanced in terms of of their ability to weaponize, uh, enrich weaponized uranium certainly creates a significant issue uh, that has been looming over not just this visit, but really the entire Biden administration national security team, Jake.
1: So what do we know about President Biden's order to to carry out the strike? Was he en route to Canada when he authorized it?
9: Yeah, he was actually on Air Force One when he was first briefed about that, when he was given the options from the Pentagon and when he gave the green light on the option that ended up playing out. Again, this was a trip that the president uh, very much wanted to elevate the relationship with Canada. And yet this issue has certainly been uh, kind of front and center, at least talk to the side a little bit throughout the course of his more than a day here and certainly something he'll have to address not just at this press conference but in the days uh, and weeks ahead and as you noted uh, earlier in the show it's whether or not there will be another response given what we've seen since the initial drone attack is still very much a live question uh, right now as they weigh options uh, even in the midst uh, of these very uh, serious and significant bipartisan or bilateral talks Jake.
1: all right phil manningly in ottawa thanks so much appreciate it we're going to bring you president biden live as soon as that starts but First, signs of Russia possibly regrouping in a key part of Ukraine. Stay with us. Some uh, new news in our world lead. Reports of explosions within the last hour in Syria, in the same city that the U.S. military struck yesterday. CNN's Orin Lieberman is at the Pentagon. Oren, what are you learning about those explosions? Is it another
6: uh, retaliatory strike by the U.S.? Jake, at this point all we know is the location of the explosions and the challenge there is that it's both, as you mentioned, the site where the U.S. conducted its own airstrikes against facilities used by groups linked to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, but there is also a U.S. presence not far from that city at all, the city of Deir Azor zor in central eastern Syria or thereabouts. That U.S. Uh, presence there at a base housing U.S. troop means this could go either way. This could be U.S. strikes in response to 10 rockets on Green Village, or it could be more rocket attacks from groups linked to Iranian proxies, or other groups there, so that's the challenge here. What does seem to be clear at this point, given the course of the last 24 to 36 hours, is this is very much a continuation of what we saw. First, a drone attack against a facility in northeast Syria that killed one U.S. contractor and wounded six other U.S. personnel. A retaliatory strike in this city that we're talking about now, in Deir ez-Zor against facilities, ammunition, and intelligence used by groups linked to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and then 10 rockets fired at Green Village, which houses U.S. troops that occurring this morning and now we're looking at this latest uh, attack and Jake we're waiting to get more information clarity on who was firing at whom here but it seems very much like Syria unstable as it always is we're very much getting a sense of that right now
1: all right Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon Forest thanks so much with us now to discuss David Sanger he's a New York Times White House and national security correspondent and of course CNN's Abby Phillip uh, the host of inside politics um, What do you want to hear from President Biden about these strikes, this back and forth going on here?
10: Well, the first thing we want to hear, Jake, is what exactly is happening. Obviously, it's unclear right now whether this is U.S. retaliation continued or something else. But, you know, the president now has a three-part Iran problem. Part one is what you've just seen with the drones. That's an older problem. Part two is Iran's supply of weapons to Russia which seems to be continuing, uh, in fact, more aggressively than, say, the Chinese, who have shown yeah. a fair For bit of For use the
1: against the Ukrainians, we should point For out. For
10: use against the Ukrainians, that's right. But an active, clear alliance in, in this war. And then the third part is the part that worries the United States the most, which is the nuclear program. And yesterday, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, made some news. He said something we knew, which is it would only take about two weeks for the Iranians to take the fuel they have and enrich it to bomb grade. But then he said something we didn't know, which he said is he thinks it would only take about two or three months for the Iranians to actually fabricate that into a weapon. The Israeli and American positions until now has been that's a year or two. That means that the president would have relatively little decision space if the Iranian, things turn bad here and the Iranians decide to move forward.
11: Yeah, I mean, that's a really terrifying prospect, but it also highlights just how far we've come on this issue. I mean, Biden campaigned, remember, on going back to the Iran nuclear deal, and that seems very much off the table for a number of reasons. Uh, there is the, the issue of Iran providing drones and, and weapons to Russia. There's also those, uh, those protests that we've seen in Iran over human rights and women's rights that have really tied his hands and, Pushed even democratic allies to say we can't be at the table with Iran. And now, what you're describing, David, a very short timeline for uh, for Iran to have a potentially have a nuclear weapon. I think really also just shows how constrained the Biden administration is right now uh, with dealing with Iran, and they don't really have any tools, it seems, uh, in their toolbox uh, to to deal with it, except for what we are seeing here on the ground in Syria, which is uh, airstrikes to fire back at some of these attacks, but that's not a, a containment strategy. That's not a de- necessarily a deterrent strategy. Uh, that's a reaction to what is going on in it's, the region. It's
10: not even an anti-Iran strategy because these are proxy groups that are you know, using these drones and doing these attacks, but they're not Iranians themselves.
1: Although we should note, when uh, President Trump ordered the assassination of General Soleimani, the Ar- Iranian general, and I believe that took place in Iraq... That's um, right. The United States, not just President Trump, but the United States intelligence apparatus in the Pentagon said that General Soleimani was responsible for the killing and maiming of, of dozens, if not hundreds, of American service members because he would provide these parts for these, Ira- for these um, Iranian-linked militias, the Shia militias, to attack uh, American soldiers when they were in Iraq. So you could argue uh, that there has been a war going on between the United States and Iran or proxies for Iran for years now.
10: That's right. Um, In testimony yesterday, General Carrillo, who runs Central Command, which is responsible for this region, said there had been about 70 attacks since Biden came to office using drones on Americans, but almost all of them have been unsuccessful. So what happened yesterday was the U.S. got very unlucky. Tragically, a, a contractor was killed. Others were injured. And that's what's driving the president's response he hasn't really responded or talked very much about unsuccessful attacks. Now that one has.
1: But as David noted, Abby, um, Iran is one of the countries providing weaponry for Russia to kill uh, Ukrainians. That's a step that we haven't even seen the Chinese go so far as to do.
11: Right, exactly. And it's allowed Russia in... in cases where they haven't had the manpower or the ammunition to do certain things. It's given them the ability to bomb Ukraine and also to bomb Ukrainian civilians. I mean, I think this is a really key part is that Russia is using these drones to carry out what a lot of people consider to be human rights violations. And and Iran is responsible for that. So if we see China adding to that, I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing the Biden administration so strongly warning China against taking that step. And
1: here is President Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. They're in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. They're going to make remarks and then they'll take questions from reporters. Uh, Let's uh, listen. And I'm sure that President Biden will address this.
12: Good afternoon, everyone. To welcome my friend, President Biden, Joe, to Canada this week. We had the opportunity to discuss the progress made under the February 2021 roadmap for a renewed U.S.-Canada partnership, a plan our countries put forward a month after the President was sworn in.
13: Today, with President Biden, we've made progress on several important files, and I'd like to mention some of our common priorities. Growing the middle class, strengthening the economy, making life more
12: affordable for people, fighting climate
13: change and protecting the environment, protecting our citizens and our values.
12: In this serious time, with all the challenges we face, we're doubling down on our partnership and on our friendship. As I said earlier today, economic policy, climate policy, and security policy aren't just connected, they're one and the same. Both the President and I agree on this, and that's why we launched a joint energy transformation task force that will accelerate our work on clean energy and clean tech. This will include securing and strengthening electric vehicle and critical mineral supply chains and other areas to advance our collective energy security. Of course, an integrated approach means creating good middle-class jobs for workers on both sides of the border, and it will make our collective economic growth stronger and more resilient securing and developing critical minerals supply chains is essential to making things like batteries computers phones and semiconductors le canada et les etats unis ont convenu de mettre en place
13: Canada and the United States have agreed to put in force a system for building semiconductors, and so I'd like to announce today that we have signed an agreement with IBM to extend the ability and capacity for the installations in Bromont, Quebec, to develop new capacity. Demand is on the rise, as is competition. Canada's investment in semiconductors, which will be up to $250 million, will make it possible to enhance uh, the competitivity of the North American economy, create jobs for the middle class, and to draw on Canadian talent in
12: in addition to reducing pollution. In addition to cutting pollution and fighting climate change, the President and I also worked on protecting, protecting more nature, as well. Canada and the U.S. share the longest land border in the world. We share three oceans and the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are a source of drinking water for 40 million people, and this shared resource needs to be protected. This is why Canada will make a major new investment of $420 million to continue safeguarding the Great Lakes for generations to come. Whether it's on protecting our shared waters, including in the Arctic, conserving biodiversity, or building strong net-zero economies, Canada and the U.S. will continue to work together as partners. We'll also continue to work together as partners to keep our people safe. Keeping people safe also includes keeping asylum seekers safe, keeping our borders secure, and keeping our immigration system strong. Both of our countries believe in uh, safe, fair, and orderly migration, refugee protection, and border security. This is why we will now apply the Safe Third Country Agreement to asylum seekers who cross between official points of entry. After midnight tonight, police and border officers will enforce the agreement and return irregular border crossers to the closest port of entry with the United States. Lorsque l'accord sera mis en œuvre, when the agreement
13: comes into force as of midnight tonight, border officers will return people crossing the border
12: to the closest
13: Canada US border crossing. Our teams have worked hard to achieve this agreement. All of the work will make it possible to deter irregular immigration at our borders
12: while at the same time
13: we increase
12: regular migration Keeping and immigration safe is always our top priority last year i had the opportunity to visit norad personnel in colorado norad plays a central role in detecting deterring and defending against aerospace threats to our shared continent NORAD has protected North America for over 60 years, and we're continuing our work to meet the evolving security challenges we face today. Canada is making major investments to modernize surveillance systems. And on top of that, we will invest to modernize and build new infrastructure to support the arrival of our 88 new F-35 fighter jets so that, most importantly, we can support our men and women in uniform who keep us safe. This bolsters Canada's defense abilities for the coming decades. Of course, protecting our countries also means continuing our work to make our borders more secure and keep people safe. The opioid overdose crisis is having devastating consequences in our communities. We're going to disrupt the cross-border movement of chemicals used in the illegal production of fentanyl. Canada and the United States will build a global coalition against synthetic drugs, we must stop the traffic of synthetic opioids while at the same time focusing on a public health response. If we want to keep Canadians and Americans safe at home, we have to continue defending our values around the world. Values like democracy, the rule of law, and respect for the international rules-based order. Today, we reaffirmed our steadfast support for the Ukrainian people as they defend themselves against Putin's brutal, barbaric invasion. We also talked about other parts
13: of the world that are experiencing difficulties, like Haiti. As I said,
12: Canada will keep Haiti
13: in the heart of the solution for resolving this crisis. Today, I'm announcing that Canada will invest an additional $100 million to provide better police support to the national police force in Haiti. We will also impose additional sanctions on two other members of the Haitian elite who are benefiting from insecurity and violence. We are determined to increase international support for Haiti, including
12: through humanitarian assistance. President
13: Biden and I had very productive meetings. As I said a little earlier, our economic measures are also climate measures, security measures. The president recognizes the importance of acting on all of these fronts.
12: Last time we stood together in this very room, you were the outgoing vice president and We were embarking upon some challenging times in our relationship as a country, as two friends and countries. I have to say, um, through our conversations back then, through the work we've been able to do over these past two years, it has truly been an honour to be able to work with you for the benefit of Canadians and Americans, but also to continue to have a positive impact on the world in a very uncertain time. Your speech in Parliament a few minutes ago was filled with optimism grounded in a deep faith in people in the character of the citizens we serve and their ability to step up and meet the challenges before us. Like we have for many years, we will continue to work shoulder to shoulder as allies and friends to build a better future for Canadians and Americans alike. It is always a pleasure to stand beside you. It is always a pleasure to work with you. Right now, it's a pleasure to hand it over to you.
14: Thank you very much, Mr. Prime Minister. And uh, I can't think of a challenge we haven't met together when we sought to to do it together. Excuse me. Um, Before I speak of the progress of uh, this trip, I was informed by my national security team on the way over here that... uh, about an attack in Syria yesterday. An Iranian-backed militant uh, group used an unmanned aerial vehicle to strike one of our facilities, causing several American casualties. One of our citizens tragically died in that attack. And uh, on the flight up yesterday, I spoke to our national security team and ordered an immediate response. Last night, U.S. military forces carried out a series of airstrikes in Syria targeting those responsible for attacking our personnel. My heart and deepest condolences go out to the family of the American. We lost and wish a speedy recovery for those who were wounded. But I'm also grateful for the professionalism of our service members who uh, so ably carried out this response. And uh, to make no mistake, the United States does not, does not emphasize seek conflict with Iran but be prepared for us to act forcefully, protect our people. That's exactly what happened last night. We're going to continue to keep up our efforts to counter terrorist threats in the region and partnerships with Canada and other members of the coalition uh, to defeat ISIS. Now, let me get to today's business. It's wonderful to be back in Canada. I'm honored I had a chance to address Parliament this afternoon. They were very patient, and I appreciate it. You know, a little over 75 years ago, in his own address to Parliament, President Truman said no two nations are called upon to make great contributions to the world's rehabilitation. And uh, well, we are making great contributions to the world's rehabilitation, in my view. Today as we stand at, as I said today, an inflection point in history, our nations are once again called upon to lead. And together, I believe, we're answering the call. First. We've unleashed an economic potential of our people and our partnership, and partnership that generates more than $2.5 billion in trade every single day. Secondly, we're transforming our hemisphere into clean energy powerhouse, including extending the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits to electric vehicles assembled in Canada. And as we discussed over the last two days, we're also strengthening our supply chains for critical min- minerals and semiconductors that power our everyday lives. Today, we're making a $50 million available through the Defense Production Act to incentivize more U.S. and Canadian companies to invest in packaging of these semiconductors and printed circuit boards. I also want to emphasize what I said earlier in Parliament, that Canada and the United States always will have each other's backs. And we see this through NORAD as we work to modernize the world's only and I emphasize it again, the only binational military command. There's none other than the world. And we see it through NATO, where we're ensuring that we can meet any threat. And over the last year, we've seen it through our strong and unified support for the brave people of Ukraine, to which the Prime Minister spoke so masterfully today in Parliament, and stepping in to provide critical humanitarian aid, as well as security assistance, and for Canada's embrace of Ukrainian refugees. And as we head into the second year of Russia's brutal invasion, Our our, our unity is not going to break. We're going to keep the pressure on Putin through our historic sanctions and tariffs, and we're going to continue to provide Ukraine with training, equipment, humanitarian assistance it needs, and to defend itself against Russian aggression. And finally, as we deepen the global cooperation, we're also exploring our regional uh, collaboration. As we discussed today, we're doubling down on our work to disrupt synthetic drugs which have claimed too many American and Canadian lives. By bolstering our work together in the North American Drug Dialogue with Mexico and building on a new global coalition against synthetic opioids, we're working to get these killer drugs like fentanyl out of our communities. And together, under the Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection, and the Prime Minister has already spoken, we're also making good on our commitment to address the historic levels of migration in our hemisphere. Since we created dedicated pathways in the United States, the number of migrants arriving on our southern border has dropped precipitously. And I commend Canada for stepping up with a similar program, opening new legal pathways for up to 15,000 migrants to come to Canada from countries in the Western Hemisphere. Mr. Prime Minister, Canada and the United States has always been partners in progress. And today, we're once again called to lead. I know that the United States can count on Canada to be our friend, doing the hard work, doing the historic work, doing the work that matters, and doing it together. I truly believe uh, we're going to make some great contributions. And I, I am optimistic about the future. And that's not hyperbole. I'm optimistic. I really am. We're going to make a better future for the people of Canada, the American people, and in consequence for the whole hemisphere and around the world. Thank you.
13: Thank you, Mr. President. Prime Minister, we'll be taking two questions from the American delegation, two questions from the Canadian delegation, one question, one follow-up. Mr. President, first question over to you.
14: All right, uh, I guess the first person I'm calling on is Josh. Josh. Josh.
5: Thank you, Mr. President. Two questions, one for each of you. Mr. President, you talked today about the security and economic partnership with Canada. President Xi just went to Russia and expanded China's economic commitment with that country. Why do you think many leading countries are choosing to form competing partnerships, and what does that mean for the world?
9: Prime Minister Trudeau.
5: Oh, sorry. Canada recently banned TikTok on government devices. Knowing what you know, are you comfortable with the idea of your children or family members using TikTok? Thank you.
14: I've responded to the question first. Well, first of all, look, uh, in 10 years, Russia and and, uh, China have had 40 meetings, 40 meetings. And I disagree with the basic premise of your question. Uh, I have, uh, we have, uh, um, you know, uh, significantly expanded our alliances. I haven't seen that happen with China and or Russia or anybody else in the world. We're in a situation in the United States where NATO is stronger, we're all together, the G7, the Quad, the uh, ASEAN, uh, Japan and Korea. I have uh, — my staff point out to me, I have now met with 80 percent of the world leaders just since I've been president. We're the ones expanding the alliances. The opposition is not. Name for me where that's going. And tell me what ha- — I don't mean literally uh, that, but rhetorically. Tell me how, in fact, you see a circumstance where China has made some significant commitment to Russia — And what commitment can they make economically, economically? Uh, Pardon me? Their trade has increased, sir. Yeah, Their trade has increased compared to what? Look, look, I, I don't take China lightly. I don't take Russia lightly. But I think we vastly exaggerate. I would hear, I've been hearing now for the past three months? How about China is going to provide significant weapons to Russia and they're going to exp- we well, they've all been talking about that. They haven't yet. Doesn't mean they won't, but they haven't yet. And if anything's happened, the West has coalesced significantly more. How about the Quad? How about Japan and the United States and South Korea? How about what we've done in terms of AUKUS? How about what we — I mean, so I just want to put it in perspective. I don't take it lightly what Japan, what China, excuse me, and, uh, uh, and Russia are doing. And it could get significantly worse. But let's put it in perspective. We are uniting coalitions. We, we, the United States and Canada.
12: On TikTok, uh, we made a similar decision to uh, the American government and others when we said that we do not feel that the security profile is uh, safe for government issued phones. Um, there are concerns around privacy and security, and that, mean, that is why we have banned uh, TikTok from government issued phones. But your question, uh, Josh, was about um, what I do as a parent of teenagers uh, and my kids on social media. And on that, On that. Uh, I am obviously uh, concerned with uh, their privacy and their security which is uh, why I'm glad that on their phones that happen to be issued by the government they no longer access TikTok. Uh, That was a big frustration for them. Really this applies to us too dad? Yes, I just did that. Um, But I think as parents we are understanding, particularly of teenagers, just how much of our kids lives are lived online and how much they are impacted Uh, not just by influence the way their friends are and peer pressure that all of us went through as teenagers, but a degree of misinformation, disinformation and malicious activity uh, that is allowed for by incredible advances in technology that we are benefiting from in so many different ways. As governments, we have to make sure we're doing what we can to keep people safe in the public square, making sure we're pushing back against hate speech and incitations to violence online, and we're carefully calibrating legislation to do that. As a parent, I spend a lot of time talking to my kids about what's online and how they should try and go outside and play a little more sports and not get so wrapped up in their phones, Um, and we're going to continue to do that. Our concerns around TikTok are around security uh, and access to information that the Chinese government could have to government phones. It's just a personal side benefit that my kids can't use TikTok anymore that I recommend everyone to use my, in, my encouragement to try and do.
13: Thank you. We'll take the Canadian question Christiane Radio-Canada to a Canadian question.
3: Mr. President, bonjour. Mr. Trudeau, bonjour.
13: Good afternoon, uh, Mr. President. Good afternoon, Mr. Prime Minister. I'd like to ask a question about Roxham Road. The agreement has been ready for a year. Why did you wait so long? And for the 15,000 migrants that Canada will welcome,
12: why so few?
13: What have we offered to the U.S. in exchange?
12: Thank you, Christian. We've known
13: for a long time
12: theoretically, what modernization
13: needed to be made to the Roxham Road, to the the agreement. We couldn't simply shut down Roxham Road and hope that everything would resolve itself because we would have had
12: problems. The border
13: is very long. People would have looked for other places to cross. And so that's why we chose to modernize
12: the Safe Third Country Agreement so that
13: someone who attempts to cross between official
12: crossings will
13: be subject to the
12: principle, the same principle as
13: someone who should seek asylum in the first safe country they arrive at.
12: Now, for people who are coming from the U.S., that is where they should The asylum seekers, using this
13: means of uniformly applying the agreement,
12: which we knew theoretically would be the
13: solution, but it takes complex processes to manage the border. It took
12: months before we
13: could move forward with the announcement.
12: But by doing so, we protected the integrity of the system And we are also continuing to live up to our obligations with
13: respect to asylum seekers.
12: At the same time, we continue to be open to regular migrants
13: and we will increase the number of asylum seekers who we accept from the hemisphere.
12: The Western Hemisphere, in order to compensate for closing
13: these irregular crossings. Thank you.
12: Mr. President, this
0: question is for you, but Mr. Trudeau, sentez-vous libre de répondre aussi? Please feel free, Mr. Trudeau, to answer as well.
12: Mr. President, êtes-vous déçu? Are you disappointed
13: that Canada is not part or hasn't taken a bigger role in the multilateral forces in Haiti? And what would you like Canada to do more, in addition to the $100 million announced today?
14: Well, no, I'm not disappointed. Look, this is a very, very difficult circumstance. The idea of how do we deal with what's going on in Haiti, where gangs have essentially uh, um, taken the place of the government, in effect. They run, they rule the roost, as the saying goes. And uh, so I think that what the prime minister has spoken about makes a lot of sense. The biggest thing we could do, and it's going to take time, is to increase the prospect of the police departments in Haiti having the capacity to deal with the problems they're faced. And that is going to take a little bit of time. We also are looking at whether or not the international community through the United Nations could play a larger role in this event, in this, this, this circumstance. But there is no question that there is a real, genuine concern, because there are several million people in, in Haiti, and uh, the, the, uh, the diaspora could cause some real, uh, real uh, how can I say it, confusion in the Western Hemisphere. And so, but I think that what the Prime Minister is suggesting, and we are as well going to be contributing, to see if we can both increase the efficiency and capacity of the training and the methods used by the police department, as well as seeing if we can engage other people in the hemisphere, which we've been talking to, and they're prepared to do some. So it's a, it's, it's a work in progress.
12: Depuis 30 ans. Uh, have been involved in Haiti to try to stabilize the country, to try to help the Pearl of the Antilles. And
13: the situation
12: is atrocious, it's affecting the security of the people of Haiti.
13: We must take action.
12: And we must keep the Haitian people in the approach that we build
13: for security and that's why the approach that we are working on with the U.S. involves strengthening the capacity of the Haitian National Police,
12: bringing more peace and security and stability
13: This won't happen tomorrow. It will, of course, be a long process, but we will be there to support the capacity of the police in Haiti, the national police. At the same time, part of the insecurity and instability in Haiti
12: is because of the Haitian elite
13: who have for too long
12: benefited from
13: the misery of the Haitian people
12: they work for their own political gain, their own personal gain.
13: and this has prevented the country from recovering. and that's why we're proceeding with sanctions. We will continue to bring pressure to bear on the elite, the political class in Haiti to hold them,
12: accountable
13: for the distress facing the Haitian people, but to hold them accountable for ensuring their well-being. We're going to continue to work together. We
12: fully understand how important
14: this task is.
12: Mr. President, over to you.
14: Can I follow up with one point on Haiti? And that is that uh, any decision about military force, which is often raised, we think would have to be done in consultation with the United Nations and, uh, and with the Haitian government. And so that is not off the table, but that is not in play at the moment. I'm sorry.
2: Over to you for the question, Mr. President.
14: Uh, I, uh, Jordan, uh, you have a question?
7: Thank you, Mr. President. Um, Some on Wall Street have expressed frustration that it's unclear what more your administration is willing to do to resolve the banking crisis. Uh, The markets have remained in turmoil. So how confident are you that the problem is contained? And if it spreads, what measures such as guaranteeing more deposits are you willing or not willing to take?
14: First of all, have you ever known Wall Street not in consternation? Number one, uh, look, I think we've done a pretty damn good job. People's uh, savings are secure. And uh, even those beyond the $250,000 uh, the FDIC is guaranteeing them that the American taxpayer is not going to have to pay a penny. The banks are in pretty good shape. What's going on in Europe isn't a direct consequence of what's happening in the United States. And uh, I, uh, what we would do is if we find that there's more instability than appears. We'd be in a position to have the FDIC use the power it has to guarantee those, those loans above 250, like they did already. And so I think it's going to take a little while for things to just calm down. But I don't see anything that's on the horizon that's about to explode. Uh, but I, 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 I do understand there's an unease about this. And these mid-sized banks have to be able to survive. And uh, I think they'll be able to do that.
7: And, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, the U.S. has included Canada in electric vehicle subsidies, as you've discussed, uh, that were included in the Inflation Reduction Act. But the IRA also raises some competitiveness concerns and challenges for Canada. President Biden supports Buy American provisions very strongly, and uh, that has historically led to some trade tensions. So, um, Are you planning to announce anything in your budget to keep up, so to speak, and are you asking the U.S. government for exceptions to the Buy
12: American provisions in other areas? First of all, there's nothing new about Canada having to make sure that we remain competitive with the United States as a place for investment. That's something uh, that we have long known as a, a friendly competition between us that has led to tremendous growth and benefits in both of our countries. Right now, we're in a time where Joe talked about it as an inflection point. I think that's exactly right. We can feel the global economy shifting. Uh, Shifting in very real ways towards uh, lower carbon emission technologies, uh, cleaner tech, uh, great jobs in the natural resource and manufacturing industries that are going to be increased on our continent after years of outsourcing and offshoring. There is a real opportunity for both of us and the IRA, uh, which is bringing in massive investments and massive opportunities. Uh, for American workers and companies is also going to have strong impacts on supply chains and producers and employees in Canada. Yes, we're going to have to make sure we're staying competitive and targeting the areas where we think we can best compete, and we'll have more to say about that in our budget next week. But let us take a moment to step back and see that North America, Canada and the United States in particular, are incredibly well-positioned to be the purveyors of solutions and uh, economic growth that the net-zero economy around the world will need over the coming decades. The innovation, the know-how, the ability of us to make big things together leave us in a time of global uncertainty extremely certain that we are well placed for the future whether it's investments that that have seen Canada go from fifth or sixth in the world in in terms of battery supply chains to now second in the world in terms of battery supply chains whether it's uh, continuing our leadership on the cleanest aluminum in the world moving towards cleaner steel and zero emission steel whether it's uh, moving forward on critical minerals, that the world is understanding they can no longer rely on places like China or Russia for, that they can rely on Canada to be not just a purveyor of ores, but of finished materials that will be built in environmentally responsible union or good middle-class jobs, uh, wages, strong communities, and the kind of leadership that the world is increasingly looking for. There's long been a bit of a weakness, I think, to our argument that we've made over the past decades as Western democracies that says that our model is the best one, it leads to the most prosperity, but so much of our model we sort of turned our back to the fact that it relied on cheap imports of goods, or resources from parts of the world that didn't share our values and weren't responsible on the environment or on human rights or on labor standards. And what we are doing right now is showing that we can and will build resilient supply chains between us and with friends around the world that adhere every step of the way to the values that we live by that make sure that there are good jobs for workers in communities, urban and rural, right across our continent. There are good careers for kids long into the future, not in spite of a changing world, but because of that changing world and how well we are positioned to see the future and meet the future. That's why it's so exciting to be able to work alongside Joe in these challenging times where we know we are better positioned than just about anyone else and those friends of ours who share our values and our democracies around the world will benefit from the strength and the relations they have with us and those who choose to continue to turn their backs on the environment, on human rights, on the values of freedom and dignity for all, will increasingly not be able to benefit from the growth that our societies, that our communities are creating every single day.
14: And by the way, we each have what the other needs. We each have what other needs. The idea that somehow Canada is somehow uh, put at a disadvantage because we're going to probably be investing billions of dollars in their ability to package what is coming out of the semiconductor area. I don't get it. How's that in any way do anything other than hire and bring billions of dollars into Canada? I also don't understand how when we talk about it we we greatly need Canada in terms of the minerals that are needed. Well, you guys we don't have the minerals to mine. You can mine them. You don't want to produce I mean, you know, turn them into product. We do. I mean, it's—I'm a little confused, at at least thus far, on why this is a disadvantage for for Canada and the United States. I think we each have what the other needs. And let me conclude by saying, you know, when I started talking about we're going to build our economies from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down, I was being literal because— what happened is, if you think about it, in the Democrat and Republican administrations beginning over 30 years ago or more in the United States, corporate America decided that what they're going to do is they're going to export jobs and import product because there's cheaper labor. Well, guess what? Now we are making sure they import jobs here, jobs here, and we export product. Canada is doing the same thing. So this is, a real, this is a real shift in the world economy in terms of what we're prepared to do. And I'll be darned if I'm going to stick in a situation where, as long as I'm president, where we have to rely on a supply chain in the other end of the world that is affected by politics, pandemics, or anything else. We're not hurting, we're not hurting anyone in terms of having access to the start of the supply chain. It's available. But again, I, uh, I predict to you, you're going to see, after we're both out of office, both China, I mean, China out of the game in terms of many of the, the product they're, they're, they're producing. And the United States and Canada, pretty solid economically situated for the future in terms of also bringing back manufacturing jobs. Sorry. And they're telling me I'm talking too long because we got to go to dinner.
13: Thank you. We'll take one last question.
7: Uh, my first question is for the Prime Minister, but Mr. President, feel free to weigh in before my follow-up. Uh, <laughs> Prime Minister, we know, you've, we know that you've appointed a special rapporteur, but with what we've learned about Han Dong's communication with the Chinese Consular General, do you believe he advocated for the delayed release of the
12: two Michaels? First of all, Han uh, gave uh, a strong speech in the House that I recommend uh, people uh, listen to, and uh, we fully uh, accept that he is stepping away from the Liberal caucus uh, in order to uh, vigorously contest these allegations. But I I do want to take a step back and point out that foreign interference, interference by authoritarian governments like China, Russia, uh, Iran and others, is a very real challenge to our democracies and is absolutely unacceptable. It's why over the past number of years, the President and I have had many conversations about this, and indeed, we'll continue to work together with our democratic allies around the world to keep our institutions and our democracies safe from foreign interference. In 2018, when Canada hosted the G7 in Charlevoix, we actually created the G7 rapid response mechanism to protect our democracies in cases of interference and we will continue to work together to make sure we're doing everything necessary to protect our democracies which by definition are more open and therefore more vulnerable to foreign actors trying to weigh in in our politics in our business in our research institutions, and particularly impact on citizens themselves, which is why over the past years, Canada, like our allies around the world, has given itself new rigorous tools to counter foreign interference. And uh, with the work that our expert uh, rapporteur will do, with the work that our national Security Committee of Parliamentarians uh, will be doing, and other institutions, um, we will continue to do everything necessary to keep Canadians safe.
7: Thank you, and uh, Mr. President, uh, when you took office, you cancelled the Keystone Excel pipeline. Uh, this week your government delayed the environmental assessment. Uh, to reroute Enbridge Line 5, and at the same time, you're approving oil drilling in Alaska. So, what's your response to people who say it's hypocritical to stymie Canadian energy projects, while allowing your
14: own? First of all, uh, I don't think it is, but I'll be very brief. The difficult decision was on what we do with the Willow project in Alaska. And uh, my strong inclination was to disapprove of it across the board. But the advice I got from counsel was that if that were the case, I may very well lose in court. And lose that case in court to the oil company. And then not be able to do what I really want to do beyond that. And that is conserve significant amounts of Alaskan sea and land forever. I was able to see to it that we literally able to conserve millions of acres, not a, not a few, millions of acres of sea and land forever, so it cannot be used in the future. I am banking on, we'll find out, that the oil company is going to say not, that's not going to be challenged, and they're going to go with, th- with three sites. And the energy that is going to be produced there, estimated, would would account to 1%, 1% of the total production of oil in the world. And so I thought it was a good, a, a, the better gamble and a hell of a trade-off to have the Arctic Ocean, the Bering Sea, and so many other places off limits forever now. I think we put more land and conservation than any administration since Teddy Roosevelt. I'm not positive of that, but I think that's true.
13: Thank you all. This is what concludes today's press conference. de presse Thank you.
14: Thanks. <laughs>
1: You have been listening to a joint news conference with President Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The two men are in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. President Biden making his first public comments about that drone strike in Syria and retaliation by the U.S. The U.S. believes that the drone strike was carried out by Iranian affiliated groups. That strike killed an American contractor and wounded five American service members yesterday President Biden, as I said, ordered that retaliatory airstrike, although he just insisted the U.S. is not looking for conflict with Iran. While President Biden was speaking, CNN learned of another attack targeting U.S. forces in Syria. Let's go straight to CNN's Natasha Bertrand, who's at the Pentagon for us. Natasha, what do we know about this latest attack?
3: Yeah, Jake, so we are just hearing this within the last few minutes that Iranian backed groups have launched yet another attack on U.S. forces in northeastern syria now it is unclear whether there are any casualties or any damage at this point and we are told that the u.s is still assessing that but it comes as local residents did tell cnn that they had heard multiple explosions and we are told that this attack uh, was carried out using rockets now the big question of course is whether the u.s is going to now retaliate against this attack because this is the third attack in two days by proxy groups associated with Iran. And that is, of course, really an escalation here of what Iran has been doing. Just earlier this morning, we had heard that U- Iran-backed groups had also launched 10 rockets at yet another U.S. base in Syria. Now, that caused no casualties, but it did wound two women and two children. And then, of course, yesterday, uh, the Iranian-backed uh, militias, they launched uh, a drone attack against a coalition military base in Syria as well, and that killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. service members and an additional U.S. contractor. So all of this kind of tit-for-tat, kind of violent volleying between the U.S.-backed, the Iran-backed militias and the U.S. in Syria is really reaching uh, kind of a boiling point here, and the big question is whether the U.S. is now going to respond to this latest attack like they did yesterday uh, with that U.S. airstrike on Iranian-backed facilities in Syria that house munitions as well as uh, were used for intelligence gathering. Jake.
1: All right, Natasha Bertrand with all the latest from the Pentagon. Joining us now to discuss Brigadier General Patrick Ryder, who is the press secretary uh, for the Pentagon. Uh, General, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, First of all, do we know anything about casualties in this latest strike of Iranian-backed militias against
15: the United States? Hey, uh, first of all, thank you very much, Jake, for, for having me. Uh, as Natasha highlighted, uh, we're, we're assessing uh, those reports right now, and when we have more information to provide, we'll, we'll certainly do that. In the meantime, our focus in Syria remains squarely on the def- enduring defeat of ISIS, and that's why we have forces there, uh, and that will remain our fo- focus. But as demonstrated by our airstrikes last night, when our forces are threatened, uh, we will certainly take appropriate action uh, to, to defend them. How much is the
1: United States uh, fighting ISIS in Syria versus these Iranian-backed militias, which are, of course, Shiite, not Sunni, as ISIS is?
15: Yeah, so let, let's just make one thing clear. We have one mission in Syria, and again, that's the enduring defeat of ISIS. Working with our partners in Syria, the Syrian Democratic Forces uh, and as part of an international coalition to ensure that ISIS cannot resurge. Uh, when it comes to these Iranian backed militant groups, uh, you know, again, we continue to see this sort of destabilizing activity, these these attacks. Uh, not only in Syria, you've seen uh, IRGC backed groups, uh, IRGC Navy in the Gulf, you've seen activities in Iraq. Uh, You've even seen Iran providing drones to Russia for use in Ukraine. So, again, we're very cognizant of the threat that Iran poses to the region through groups like what we're seeing in Syria, but that does not in any way negate our primary focus uh, and the focus that will remain, which is uh, combating ISIS in Syria.
1: So we refer to them as Iranian-backed militias. And just for anybody wondering what IRGC is, that's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, um, we refer to them as Iranian-backed militias. What's your understanding to the degree that they are taking commands from Iran as opposed to being given weaponry and these militias just do whatever they want with that weaponry?
15: Well, you know, look, this is not something that's new uh, for Iran. Uh, this is a tactic that they've employed for a very long time in terms of, you know, those, that loose command and control relationship in terms of providing them with resources, providing them with guidance, providing them with sort of Uh, the the broad brushstrokes from enacting Iran's policy throughout the region. It does not uh, in any way, though, uh, put Iran in a situation where they're not culpable for these kinds of things. So again, we're going to continue to focus on fighting ISIS in Syria, But if our forces are threatened, we will take appropriate action to ensure that they remain protected uh, and that we can deter future attacks.
1: Well, your acknowledgement of the culpability of the Iranian government is interesting because President Biden just said that the U.S. will act forcefully to defend its people. Does that mean that the U.S. will go after these proxy groups only? Or will the U.S. also go after the alleged suppliers of these weaponry and perhaps command and control in Iran?
15: Yeah. Well, we're not, we're not going to preview any type of future operations. Again, uh, as evidenced last night, uh, we will take appropriate and proportionate action uh, as necessary to protect our forces wherever they're serving. You said in your press conference earlier
1: today that the radar was working properly at the facility that was struck by the Iranian-affiliated drone. If that's true, uh, why was the drone not shot down before it
15: killed the U.S. contractor and wounded five service members? Yeah, sure. Well, as, as you know, anytime there's an attack like this or some type of incident, U.S. Central Command will do a review to go back and look at what exactly happened. It doesn't change the fact that an American a, a contractor, uh, as you highlight, was killed in this and that uh, in response, the United States took retaliatory action, uh, proportionate action to, again, send a message uh, that we will protect our forces.
1: The Syrian and Iranian governments, as I understand it, have not yet commented publicly uh, since the drone strike against the U.S. Uh, Have you,
15: the U.S. government, heard anything from either government privately? Uh, Here at DOD, not to my knowledge. Again, that that may be something for you to talk to your contacts at the the White House about. But again, our focus uh, when it comes to Syria will continue to be on that enduring uh, defeat of ISIS mission. Uh, And we'll stay squarely focused on that, working with our allies and our partners and our SDF uh, partners on the ground.
1: You're, of course, familiar with the British-based group uh, monitoring the war in Syria called the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. They say that eight Iranian-affiliated fighters were killed in the U.S.'s retaliatory
15: airstrike. Can you confirm that? Well, right now, Jake, uh, CENTCOM is continuing to assess uh, the, the battle damage assessment, as we, as we call it, the BDA. Uh, and so we don't have anything to provide on that. But certainly, uh, as information comes in and we're able to release it, we'll be, be sure to provide what we can.
1: And, and lastly, General, and we do really appreciate your taking the time to answer
15: our questions.
1: Is the Biden administration, is President Biden worried that
15: this is all going to escalate tensions with Iran? Well, I'm not going to speak for the president. Uh, again, I think it's been very clear that we do not seek conflict with Iran. We do not seek to go to war with Iran. When it comes to Syria, we are there to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS so that we don't have a situation where ISIS can resurge. Uh, as you remember very well, at one point in time, they owned a large swath of Syria, a large part of Iraq, uh, beheadings for slavery. Uh, You know, entire populations of cities subjugated. Uh, We don't want to go back to those days. So we're going to continue to stay focused. Uh, We are incredibly proud of our military members who are in that region doing this important work. And Jake, if I can, the the last thing I'd like to say is, you know, look, the reason we're talking today is because there was an attack uh, on one of our facilities, and unfortunately, uh, we had a uh, an American who was killed. And so again, we want to express our sincere condolences, our thoughts, and our prayers. Uh, to that, uh, Americans' families, family, friends, and colleagues. And uh, again, we're going to continue to do everything we can to protect our people, uh, no matter where they're serving. I certainly agree with that last sentiment, uh, sending prayers and thoughts to the family uh, of that American
1: contractor killed. Brigadier General Patrick Ryder, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
15: Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it.
1: Abby Phillip and David Sanger are still uh, with me. David, your reaction to this latest attack, I mean, how escalatory is this going to get? It doesn't sound as though the Biden administration wants it to become particularly escalatory.
10: Yeah, it certainly d- does not sound that way. But at the same time, President Biden knows that he's got to maintain some of what in the, in the business they call escalation dominance, which is to say once the U.S. has counterattacked, if there is a response, they've got to come back hard. And that runs the risk that you get up a ladder that you don't really want to be climbing. Um, I don't think it's going to worry them that much if this is contained in the Syrian theater. I think it will worry them if it begins to spill over into anything that deals directly with Iran. Because as we discussed before the the press conference, they've got an ongoing issue with the provision of uh, weapons to Russia, uh, which uh, a pipeline, I think the U.S. and certainly the Ukrainians would like to stop. And they've got the ongoing nuclear issue, which is getting considerably more perilous, the Iranians haven't made a decision to make a nuclear weapon, but they've certainly set themselves up to make one quickly if they ever made that decision.
1: And then also, Abby, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, President Biden uh, campaigned on wanting to reopen the Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, And since then, uh, at time after time, the Iranians have made it clear they they're not interested uh, at all.
11: Yeah, they're not, and they uh, are taking steps to really up the ante. Uh, but I, it, it is notable the way in which Biden and he's done this in other uh, in other areas as well. He, he's trying to take the, te- the rhetorical temperature down so as to not let Iran and their provocations be the cause of, uh, an escalation in rhetoric at the, at the very least. And so that seems to me, uh, the, the administration basically saying, uh, we see the game that you're playing, we're not playing that same game. We are, uh, You know, we're going to deal with these attacks as they happen, but we're not going to expand this into a broader conflict with Iran per se. I mean, I I noted that the Pentagon press secretary, as you were just speaking with him, too, also was clear to say we've got a mission in Syria. It's about ISIS. And we're going to handle Mm -hmm. Iran uh, separately in a a separate lane. They don't want to mix the two too much in spite of these recent attacks. The president
10: had a choice. He could have come out very hard against the Iranian leadership at the beginning of that press conference he chose not. No, to he stuck
1: to a script and yeah. he didn't stick to a script when it came to a whole number of other <laughs> <That's> topics, <right. laughs> but he did when it came to Iran. David and Abby, thanks so much. And don't forget, you can catch Abby on Inside Politics Sunday in her brand new time slot, 11 a.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, our other big story, a major new twist in Donald Trump's legal challenges. Why a number of his closest White House aides are now being forced to testify before a grand jury. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead a potentially seismic development in the special counsel's criminal investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and the will of the American people. A federal judge ordering several high-profile former Trump White House aides and administration aides to testify before a grand jury. That includes Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, along with top aides Stephen Miller and Dan Scavino. CNN's Caitlin Palance is digging into this. Caitlin, who are the Trump associates the special counsel could now force to testify?
16: Well, Jake, my colleague Zach Ho and Kristen Holmes uh, and I, we came together to to learn a list of about half a dozen names who may be forced to go back into the federal grand jury in Washington looking at January 6th. Those people are some of the top people in the Trump administration and specifically in the White House around Donald Trump. They include Mark Meadows, his chief of staff at the time, John Ratcliffe, the director of national intelligence, the national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, Ken Cuccinelli, the Homeland Security secretary, and then two top aides, Stephen Miller and Dan Scavino. That's a pretty robust list of people who were witnessing Donald Trump up close leading up to January 6th and then on that day. Uh, we don't know how much any of these people have been willing to share so far in the grand jury investigation. Those grand jury proceedings are sealed. But we do know that some of them were refusing to speak to House investigators previously when they were asked questions in the separate Capitol Hill investigation. Now this ruling from Judge Beryl Howell uh, last week before she left the bench as chief judge, it does say that if they were trying... if If Donald Trump was trying to block some of their answers claiming executive privilege, the special counsel can call those people back in and get them to answer now.
1: This, of course, is just one of many legal probes that Trump is facing. This news comes on the same day that Trump's attorney had to go before a different federal grand jury in the investigation into the classified documents. What do we know about that and any other cases that you want to talk about.
16: (laughs) Right, Jake. Um, There are many cases and one of the features of all of these is Donald Trump keeps trying to block certain people from testifying, and he keeps losing. And I know we've mentioned a lot of names, a lot of attempts, a lot of rulings against him, but this is the one to really watch, especially in this classified documents probe. That's uh, a very serious investigation, so serious that the FBI had probable cause to go and search Mar-a-Lago last August and take out more than 100 classified records. The person that was... Re- compelled to testify, who was forced back into the grand jury today to speak about his direct conversations with Donald Trump, is his primary defense attorney who was responding uh, to, on his behalf to the Justice Department. And he spoke for about three and a half hours to the Justice Department. The question now is what they do with that.
1: All right, Caitlin Palance, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Tom Dupree, former principal deputy assistant attorney general in the George W. Bush administration. Mr. Dupree, good to see you as always. How significant a development is this in the special counsel's investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election? The order that these individuals cannot assert executive privilege or Trump can't to block them. They have to testify.
17: It's a very significant development, Jake. Look, these are all, for the most part, fact witnesses who were placed very close to the president, both on January 6th and, of course, in the days following the election. They're also his top advisors. And so presumably when the former president was communicating with them, he thought it would be under a shield of privilege. He probably had even more candid exchanges with them than he ordinarily would. And now we're going to hear the stories that they have to tell. Big development today.
1: Which of these witnesses, we have the eight of them up, Well, we just had them up a second ago. There they are. Mark Meadows, uh, who was the chief of staff. John Radcliffe, who was the director of national intelligence. Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor. Stephen Miller and Dan Scavino, uh, Nick Luna, John McEntee, uh, all of them White House advisors. And Ken Cuccinelli, who was at the Department of Homeland Security. Which of them would you most want to hear from?
17: I'd want to hear from Mark Meadows, Jake. Look, he was with the president on January 6th. As we know, he was a bit of an intermediary from people from the outside who were calling in saying, could you intervene with the president? Be very interesting to hear what he has to say about that day. He presumably was also involved in the president's efforts to overturn the election. He was at his side listening to the president strategize. He was on that call to Georgia, to Raffensburger. I'm sure he has a lot to say that the special counsel will be very interested in.
1: And what is the likelihood that all of these aides ordered to testify will actually cooperate? W- would any of them be able to invoke the Fifth Amendment to avoid testifying?
17: You know, it's a possibility here. I mean, I would be extremely surprised, to say the least, if all of them pled the fifth. It's possible one or two might. But look, pleading the fifth carries reputational consequences. Uh, You also have to have a genuine belief that whatever you say could subject you to criminal charges. And I'm not sure that any of those witnesses would want to place themselves in the role of co-conspirator as opposed to the role of simply an advisor to the president trying to give him lawful advice.
1: I'm not sure reputationally that all of them have the same concerns that you might. But let me uh, just uh, hash out something that Ellie Koenig told us uh, earlier, which is if they invoke the fifth, Ellie Koenig said, uh, Ellie Hoenig said, um, the prosecutor could say, we're going to give them immunity. We're going to give them immunity so they can't invoke the fifth against uh, self-incrimination because we're saying that there is no self-incrimination possible. And then there's actually just a contempt of court charge and potential jail time if they continue to, Refused to testify. Is, is that a real possibility?
17: It's absolutely a tool in any prosecutor's playbook. If you have a witness pleading the fifth, you can offer immunity. I'd be a little surprised if Jack Smith did it here. Um, I mean, immunity often you will do if you want the cooperation of a witness who you think probably hasn't done anything wrong and maybe has misplaced fears. I'm not sure any of these people fall into that category from the perspective of the special prosecutor. So although he could offer an immunity deal, I guess I'd be a little surprised knowing what we know if he actually offered immunity to these people.
1: All right, Tom Dupree. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Our other top story, U.S. forces targeted for a second time in Syria by forces believed to be backed by Iran. More from the Pentagon ahead in the Situation Room. We'll be right back. And our pop culture lead, a little break from all the death and destruction that we've been covering elsewhere. Join us tonight for a special one-on-one interview with comedian and actor Jason Sudeikis. His Emmy Award-winning show, Ted Lasso. Is back for a third season, uh, produced by our sister company Warner Brothers. Here's a bit of what Sudeikis told me about the future of this hit show. How are you going to feel the last time you perform as, as Ted Lasso? Course. I mean, that the I would think that that would, be, that would be that would be tough. And how do you think your fans would, fans, would fans of Ted Lasso would?
7: Yeah, I mean, react. impermanence is a big is another theme of the show. You know, I think one of the reasons Ted liked. Being a college coach, is because maybe, I mean, look, I'm not a psychologist and I'm just sort of BSing through a lot of the stuff, but just these things make sense to me, is that being a college coach, is there's impermanence. You only get them for four years. I will have had my time with it. I've been lucky enough in most instances of my life, been involved with things uh, that when when I no longer got to do them, I want to know that at least I did them as well as I could while I could.
1: You can see our full interview this evening, CNN primetime. The Ted Lasso phenomenon, Jason Sudeikis, one-on-one at 9 Eastern here on CNN. And then coming up on Sunday on State of the Union, I'm going to talk to the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, uh, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, House Energy and Commerce Chairwoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who just had a hearing on TikTok, and Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, who is contemplating a Senate run. That's all Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon here on CNN. Then Sunday night, join CNN for a special night of laughter. The Kennedy Center presents the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, celebrating Adam Sandler. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to our podcast all two hours just sitting right there from whence you get your podcast. All two hours like a big and juicy carne asada at El Patio. Our coverage continues now with the Situation Room. Alex Marquart in for Wolf Blitzer. I will see you
0: tonight. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.